You are now listening to Theology Applied, a podcast of Eternal City Church, where theology walks the pavement. Today you'll be hearing from Timothy Brendel, a redemptive historical theologian, as he describes what is redemptive historical interpretation of the Bible and gets into the often misinterpreted story of David and Goliath. Bro, thank you again for meeting on the podcast. Brother, this is episode one of a new podcast called Theology Applied, and we're trying to make the like idea realm of theology come down and walk the pavement. That's the goal to not let it just live in the idea world, but actually have application in our everyday life. So man, thanks for, for being on and thanks for man, making a a 600 and what four or eight page book (laughs) called the unfolding. It's a, it's such a pleasure to be back on the, on a podcast with you, bro. And I'm honored to be on, um episode one for this particular kind and wow chris you sound like a pastor a little bit <laughs> the way you're trying to live out and make a, applicable um and practical uh the glories of the truth of of the gospel so that's what's up man yeah brother I'm trying to be shepherd like man you know man yeah so brother you created an album called the unfolding and you wrote an accompanying book which is very lengthy uh, how long did that take you to produce? The unfolding project was uh, something that spanned uh, in terms of writing um, from 2012. The first chapter began being written. Uh, that was the the uh, the first chapter I started working on was on the image of God. Who are we? Um, and that was for. Um, a biblical counseling class with with Dr. Ed Welsh. Nice. So that was fall 2012, uh, and the book it came out um, April 2018. Wow, six and years. So yes, you know the re- the writing process itself was more like five five and a mm-hmm. half. You know the editing process uh, took a minute, and so yeah, it came out to be about 450 pages, but it was going to be about 650 pages, which is the number you mentioned, but thanks to the editor hacking it down, um, helping it to be clearer and clearer and clearer. So yes, bro, it was a great joy writing and I had mad support and encouragement from my wife and, and from lamp mode recordings who, who put out the book and, and also Westminster theological seminary. Yeah, brother. So for those who don't know, you can get the book on Amazon as well as lampmode.com. And you have to buy it on Kindle on Amazon, which I did. And on Kindle, it's actually 608 pages. So they, they, I guess they do the pages a bit differently. I guess so. Yeah. But man, that's a, that's a thick book. So anyway, we're going to talk hopefully clearly about what is the redemptive historical interpretation of the Old Testament or uh, redemptive historical hermeneutics. So first, brother, could you in your own kind of street level way explain what is redemptive historical hermeneutics? Absolutely, Chris. <clears throat> redemptive historical hermeneutics is a big fancy phrase uh, that really boils down to the entire Bible is about Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and his death and resurrection. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to scripture 
and not just when you get to the New Testament. Right. So by hermeneutics, Pastor Chris just mentioned a big word. All of us have a hermeneutic. It's how we interpret, how we understand the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, a brand new Christian has a hermeneutic. A non-Christian has a hermeneutic. Um, I think the best way to understand the scriptures is with a redemptive historical hermeneutic. And that's because I'm convinced that's the, that's the hermeneutic in the Bible, that the scriptures sure. interpret itself as God's one unfolding plan of redemption, of salvation. Um, and so that would be a, a shorthand way to put it, Brother Chris. And I'm getting this straight from Jesus Christ in the 24. book of Luke, Luke 24, man. Yeah. I don't know if you want to read it or want me to. I, yeah, I have you it can, ready. You could either read it or you could summarize it, however you want to do it, bro. Yes. Our Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and he rebuked his disciples, not because they didn't believe the eyewitnesses who saw him risen, but because they didn't believe the Old Testament, mm. the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And Jesus said that was enough proof, enough evidence a strong enough witness for you to believe that after I was crucified, I would be raised from the dead. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he interpreted the scriptures as being about him and his Mm. death and his resurrection and his second coming and the gospel proclamation to the nations. And so I think it's very wise and safe and actually mandatory that if the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, Mm who's the author of the Bible as the second person of the Trinity, the father, son, and Holy spirit all work together. They all work together in all everything they do, including writing the Bible. If this is how Jesus interprets scripture, we should take our P's and Q's from him. Yeah. Yeah. And in John five, right. He says, uh, these are the scriptures which speak of me yet. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. You're right, man. He even goes on to say, Moses wrote of me. Mm-hmm. Right. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was right. glad, John 8. So you're right, man. I mean, over and over and over again, the New Testament continues to ground what it says in the Old Testament. Paul would even say the gospel of God's son, the gospel of God concerning his son was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so for Paul, the gospel is not a brand new thing with the incarnation, with the birth of Jesus. It was it, it was promised beforehand in the scriptures. So, so amen, bro. Romans 1, right? That's correct. Romans yeah. 1, verses 1 to 3 in particular. And it really summarizes the gospel as the death and resurrection of Christ, mm-hmm. uh, but that which this, the Old Testament scriptures promised and proclaimed and you know, and then not to mention Paul in Galatians three, he says, God, pre- the scriptures preach the gospel to Abraham, uh, you know, beforehand, even before the Lord Jesus Christ came. And so the gospel is something that we actually have all the way back in Genesis three fifteen to, to, to go all the way back. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Paul tells Timothy, you've been acquainted with the scriptures from birth, which are able to save. Right. So. Right. There was no, in a sense, New Testament collected yet. Um, All right, question for you, brother. So what would you say the difference is between redemptive historical hermeneutic and what's called biblical theology? How would you distinguish the two if you would make a distinction? There is much overlap and connection. Um, Biblical theology is understanding the Bible in the way that it unfolds progressively. Okay. Uh, I have a bit of, I have a chart to show brother Chris that I think would really be useful. 
Okay. Um, this chart is based on a uh, concept um, that Gerhardus Voss. Can you see this, Brother Chris? Not yet. Okay. It's enabling me to, to show, it says, okay. but then it's not letting me go beyond that. Hmm. Um, you keep trying. Okay. Sorry about that, bro. It doesn't, okay. it doesn't appear to be showing. Um, but an, an example of this is the seed promise, hmm. the offspring promise in Scripture, where God promises in Genesis 3.15 that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, but this offspring promise, it unfolds progressively throughout redemptive history in which God gives what we call progressive revelation. Mm -hmm. What he reveals, he reveals uh, progressively over time, but he doesn't give the full load of the revelation right at once. He reveals it little by little. And so by the time we get to Genesis 12, the offspring of the woman so happens to be the offspring of Abraham. Mm -hmm. In Genesis 22 in particular, the offspring of Abraham will be a blessing to all nations. All those scattered Gentile people groups from Babel will be regathered and be blessed with salvation in the offspring of Abraham. Then as we get to Genesis uh, 25 and 28 through Jacob and, and, and through uh, to Genesis 49, it's clear that this offspring is going to come through the line of Judah, mm -hmm. through the royal tribe. When we get to uh, David in 2 Samuel 7, in God's covenant with David, it's clear that the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, he's the offspring of David who will sit on David's throne forever. And that's why the very first verse of the Bible, uh, very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, mm -hmm. says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Mm -hmm. And so when we think of biblical theology, it's somewhat similar to systematic theology, but systematic theology is understanding different concepts in the Bible on a circle. So what's the doctrine of justification or the doctrine of the Trinity? But biblical theology is understanding uh, biblical truths uh, progressively on a linear uh, fr fr from the, the beginning of redemptive history as it unfolds through scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And so redemptive historical hermeneutics is connected to that because I think it's the best way to do biblical theology. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you could say the grandfather of redemptive historical biblical theology is a man named Gerhardus Voss. Voss from the late 1800s and early 1900s wrote a book called Biblical Theology of the Old and New Testaments. Uh, and many of the redemptive historical scholars, such as G.K. Beale, um, uh, are, are essentially students of Gerhardus Voss. So, yeah, great, great question, man. I, I hope I didn't give too, too much of a, of a loaded answer there. No, that was great. I appreciate it, man. Uh, we, we sell at our, we have a little bookstore at our church here, and we sell the Biblical Theology Study Bible edited by Carson. And nice. it, it's really helpful. You know, you're, you're right. It traces a theme or a line all through Scripture, and then you see its fulfillment in Christ, and then it unfolds into the church and how the church is supposed to respond. Uh, That's a great point, man. It connects to the people of God. And, and I should have mentioned that this offspring promise, it connects to us in Christ because Abraham's offspring is Jesus, according to Galatians 3.16. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the chapter, all of us who are of Christ, 
we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so, yes, that's what's so significant and crucial, as I know we'll get into later, Brother Chris. What's so important about this is this is the best way for us to apply the Old Testament to ourselves because it first comes through Christ. And by faith in Christ, we're in Christ. And so if the Old Testament is his story, if it's his heritage, uh, and if the Old Testament promises are all those that are fulfilled in Jesus, well, if you and I, by faith in Jesus, we're in Christ, therefore, uh, those promises are ours, those, those, those covenant promises, those blessings. Yeah, every promise is yes and amen in Christ, Paul. Amen. Yeah, Amen good. to that, bro. So, brother, let's move. You, you have a fantastic background behind you there. Uh, yes. Painting of David, holding the head of the giant Goliath, uh, winning the victory for Israel. And, brother, I mean, there's we, we don't have to mention names, but there's so many ways to interpret this story that makes us David and the hero. And what a redemptive historical interpretation would say, no. Uh, the hero is always Jesus, and there's always a picture of salvation or the gospel. And so I, I think that for our purposes here, we could flush this story out and, and try to dig it. Chapter four in your book is is the head crusher. Uh, is it also song four? I can't remember. I believe so. Yeah. That makes sense. So why don't you, brother, take it, and, and I'd love to hear even the, the correlation between the scales and the armor, you know, reflecting Satan, and, and man, flush it out for us, because I think it's such a fantastic story. Absolutely, brother. And so when it comes to David and Goliath, it is very, very typical for us to try to first apply it to ourselves. And I, I think, brother Chris, many brothers and sisters in Christ have been so taught and trained, um, and they've just been so used to reading the Old Testament in particular in what we call an exemplary uh, way, where everything is an example for themselves. Yep. That's not bad. Um, we should read uh, scripture, and we should read the characters in the Bible uh, in, in that kind of a way, but I don't think that's how we should start off. I think we can maybe get there. I think the best way to understand it is its connection to God's one. How does this particular passage connect to God's one unfolding story of salvation? And so by the time we get to 1 Samuel 16 and 17, uh, God's people have demanded a king Mm. for themselves, but that demand is not bad. Mm. It's what's bad about it is they said, give us a king like the nations. Mm. Yep. Yep. And that's in 1 Samuel 8 in particular where they said that. And so the Lord gave them over to their desire and he gave them Saul, Mm -hmm. a disobedient king. This was the failure of the Israelites. They they had bad redemptive historical hermeneutics. (laughs) They had bad biblical theology. They should have read Deuteronomy 17, which they had access to. And in Deuteronomy 17, God made quite clear, when you go into the land, and you choose a king for yourself, don't choose a king like the nations. Rather, the Lord your God will choose a king for you. And this is the kind of king that the Lord will choose. One from among your brothers, one who doesn't lift himself up. And you know, Saul in his height, uh, and even the word for, for, for Saul's height is connected to the Hebrew word for pride and for haughtiness and for arrogance. Saul was very proud and arrogant and selfish. Um, but this 
king that the Lord will choose, he will love my word. He will love my law. He will be zealous for my glory, the Lord makes clear in Deuteronomy 17. So when the Lord sends Samuel to the house of Jesse, it so happens in 1 Samuel 16 that Jesse lives in the town of Bethlehem, Mm -hmm. which is in the tribe of Judah. Right. And if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know, as I already mentioned, that Judah is the, the, uh, out of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah is the tribe that is the royal kingly tribe. It's the tribe where God's king will come from. And so when Samuel, the scepter shall not pass, right? That's correct. Yeah. That's huge, man. And and the way he, he, he describes Judah is like a lion. Mm Mm-hmm. And the king's scepter will not depart depart from Judah. Amen. Also, when Samuel gets to Jesse's house, Samuel assumes that the Lord's uh, king that he's chosen is one who who is strong and mighty and wise based on man's appearance, Mm. based on outward appearance, based on external features. But the Lord makes quite clear he rejects Jesse's oldest seven sons. And he says, who else is left? Well, there's one more. He's shepherding the sheep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's a shepherd king. So brothers and sisters, when you're reading 1 Samuel 16, the fact that he's this chosen king is from the town of Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, a shepherd king, these things should already begin to, to, to connect basic uh, Bible understanding dots for us. But then the, the last thing to say, brother Chris, about the significance of David is this word to anoint. The Lord says, Samuel anoint, Mm -hmm. arise and anoint for me this one right here. And when Samuel anoints David in first Samuel 16, uh, 13, this word for anoint mashak, it's the root word for a word we're actually very familiar with that we say all the time, the, the root word for Mashiach, which is translated into English, Messiah. Mm-hmm. Translated right. into Greek, Christos, which is where we get Christ. Mm-hmm. So that means David, he was the anointed one. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ of Israel at this redemptive historical right. period, yeah. at this time in history. So that means David's a unique character. And so to, to try to compare ourselves directly with David right away, it's, it's wiser to understand David as an anointed one, as a messianic figure, and moreover, Brother Chris, as a representative, mm. as one who will go out and fight on behalf of Israel. Because that's what an anointed one is. Remember the priests, they were anointed ones. They were mediators. Mm. They were representatives. They represented uh, God to the people and the people to God in terms mm. of sacrifice. The prophet was another anointed office, a mediator. They represented God to the people in terms of speaking the word. But then the king, he represented the rule and reign of God over God's people, but he also represented the people in battle. And so that's why when we get to 1 Samuel 17, you see Goliath and he's taunting Saul. Yeah, He's like, Saul, you punk. Mm. You're supposed to be the representative of Israel. Where are you, Saul? But Saul is shaking in his boots. He's shaking in his sandals. <laughs> <laughs> and so who comes out to face Goliath? It's the Lord's anointed, the Lord's king, 
who comes out so that if he defeats Goliath, what he does counts for Israel. That's right. That's another theme, Brother Chris, that we can uh, draw attention to in Scripture, a federal head, mm-hmm. one acting on behalf of those he represents, just as Adam was, just as whatever Adam did counted for all who, who he represented in a similar way with David. Although every other Israelite is filled with fear, mm-hmm. filled with unbelief on the sidelines, David's victory over Goliath, it will count for them. And it will also enable and empower their victory. And so that's, that's one primary feature, I would say, uh, or, or several features, I would say, we need to notice about David, even before moving on to, to Goliath. Anything else to unpack or yeah, talk about there, Yeah, one thing I Chris? thought about was another correlation. You think about the, when, when Samuel pours the anointing oil on, the Holy Spirit comes rushing in. And Jesus at his baptism, you get the Holy Spirit anointing him, and immediately he sent out to fight Satan in the wilderness. Hallelujah, bro. Yeah. There's a lot of correlation, man. And Chris, if we're just going to say that's a coincidence, right? then we, I think we're, we're, doing, we're really doing injustice and in, in, in dishonor to, to the Lord of glory who wrote the scriptures. Uh, and so with that, Chris, that's such a striking observation you made. This is what Dr. G.K. Beale says, all of the events in salvation history recorded in scripture are unified by a wise and sovereign plan so that the earlier parts are designed to correspond that mm. is connect and point to the latter parts. It's mm, good. And so a prophet, a forerunner prophet like Samuel pouring anointing oil on the anointed one, on the Christ, on the Messiah, the representative of Israel, who's a shepherd king, Mm -hmm. and the Spirit of God coming upon him to empower him to go out and destroy the enemy. The fact that that is so similar to to the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, that when John the Baptist, another forerunner prophet, Mm -hmm. baptizes him, the Spirit of God descends upon Christ. And after he is baptized, he goes into the wilderness to overthrow and to defeat the one who Goliath actually uh, foreshadows Satan. And so should we, should we start, should we start getting down and dirty with, with, uh, with Goliath? The yeah, beast? I think you should. This is a good opportunity to do so. Unpack that for us. Excellent, man. And so just as David is clearly a type of Christ. Well, before you go, do that, Tim, let me, yes. let me just pause you. Thank you. Well, what we're not saying is, we're not saying this didn't really happen. It wasn't a real historical event. David wasn't a real person. It's not allegory. It's real history. That's right. It's just that there's more going on here than this event. That's true. And uh, Chris, we have help from the New Testament, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Luke chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus seems to see David's defeat of Goliath as a pattern for himself to fulfill. Mm. And what am I talking about? Well, in 1 Samuel 17, Goliath is clearly a giant. Mm -hmm. He's nine and a half feet tall. And in fact, in verse 51, he's called the Philistines strong man. ESV says his champion. 
But the word in Hebrew, gibor, means strong man. And this word is used in Genesis 6, 4 for the mighty men, the strong men who are the Nephilim, the mm-hmm. giants. Mm-hmm. And they are clearly the offspring of the serpent. Mm-hmm. And so going all the way back to Genesis 3, 15, God told Satan that there will be enmity, there will be war between his offspring, his descendants, his seed, and the offspring of the woman. And so in Genesis 4, we have the unfolding of the offspring of the serpent with, with Cain. Cain, yeah, yeah. His father is the devil. First mm-hmm. John 3 says. And then with Lamech, seven, the seventh born, who's even worse than Cain. Mm-hmm. And as we continue on in Genesis 5, we have the offspring of the woman through Seth. You know, you have um, uh, all the way down to, 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 uh, to, to Noah. Uh, but it's quite clear that the sons of God and the daughters of man are likely the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Mm-hmm. And as the sons of God go into the daughters of man, Genesis 6 says, the product of that was the Nephilim. Yeah. Well, we see the Nephilim, these giants, again, in Numbers 13. Mm-hmm. In Numbers 13, Moses has commissioned the spies to go into the land, the land of promise. Go check out the land of promise. Check out the fruits. Check out that land of overflowing with milk and honey and bring us back word. Tell us all about it. But what do the spies see? They see the giants. And it's only Caleb from the tribe of Judah, by the way, who's like, come on, guys. The Lord has told us we can overthrow these giants. The Lord has given us the land. He promised us. We are commissioned as God's judge against these wicked, idolatrous nations. What are you guys? Why why are you afraid? Nevertheless, they're filled with fear. Mm -hmm. And so after Joshua and the judges destroy many of these pagan nations, bringing judgment upon them, which was a righteous, just judgment Mm -hmm. on behalf of the Lord, there are, uh, there's a particular people group in the land of Canaan that they cannot drive out. Joshua's clear to the book of Joshua makes this clear. Judges makes this clear. So by the time we get to Samuel, the Philistines have like a stronghold. In fact, in 1 Samuel 17, 1, the Philistines have encamped in Judah. Mm. And so Goliath, as a giant, as a strong man, he represents the fact that the Philistines are a stubborn, unbeatable people that the Israelites have failed to drive out because of their idolatry, because of their unbelief. And so our Lord Jesus Christ calls Satan strong man mm. in Luke 11. That's right. And in Lined Matthew 12, that's yeah. right. And it's striking, Chris, that he says in Luke 11, that when you bind the strong man, then you can strip him of his armor. Yeah. And this is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament when after David slays Goliath, he strips him of his armor and he takes it into his tent. Hmm. And so I think it's quite likely that the Lord Jesus Christ, the author of scripture who knows the biblical theology of the giants, hmm. is comparing Satan to Goliath, and he's comparing himself to David. He's David's son, but he's also David's Lord. He's the son of David. 
Yeah, that's good, man. And then tell us the correlation between the scales and the satanic representation of Goliath too. Bro, there's so much detail. It's, you know, if you think about David and Goliath, 58 verses are, uh, 58 verses are used in scripture to unpack this one story. It's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. There's not many other narratives in the Bible that get that much attention. Yeah. That's you know, you're, there is, you know, in, in first Kings, it can tell the story of a King in one sentence, mm. <laughs> but there is so much detail on David and Goliath and there's mad detail on Goliath's apparel and his military weaponry. And in, in particular, in first Samuel 17, five and six, the word for bronze appears four times. Mm. The root word for bronze, nakash, is the word for serpent. And so the fact that four times in a row, Goliath is described with bronze armory, that itself sounds like an interesting clue. A few chapters earlier, there was King Nakash whose name means King Serpent. Mm. He was also a beastly, monstrous man, and he threatened to enslave the people of God. So here we have with Goliath, a worse version of King Nakash. But what you're getting at, Brother Chris, the one part of Goliath's weaponry that is not made out of bronze is his armor. In fact, in the Hebrew, arm, uh, Goliath is clothed with armor of scales, literally scaly armor. Hmm. In fact, the NIV translates it that way. Is that right? Scaly army, hmm. Sca- scaly armor. Most of our wonderful English translations translated as a coat of mail or chain link armor. Hmm. But it's very interesting because later on in the text, when we have Saul's armor, it used it, many of our own translations, like the ESV in 1 Samuel 17, 38, it translates Saul's armor also as coat of mail. Mm, interesting. Which, if I was on the translation committee, bro, and by the way, Chris, the ESV is an outstanding translation. Yeah, I love it. You don't miss any important things about the gospel, brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. if you don't know Greek and Hebrew and you have your English Bible. Praise the Lord for it. But mm-hmm. there are some important details that, we, we get from the Hebrew and Greek text. And one in particular is with Goliath's armor, there's the word for armor, shirion, and right after that, scales, kaskasim. But with Saul's armor, it's just shirion, armor. But armor of scales is important because every other place scales is used, kaskasim, it's used to describe sea monsters, mm. reptiles, Pharaoh the dragon in Ezekiel 29 has scales. Mm. And it's just, it's interesting that, that Satan is called dragon 13 times in Revelation. Okay. So Leviathan. this detail, that's right, the Leviathan. That's right. This detail, the fact that David compares Goliath to a lion and a bear. And a lion and a bear are two of the four demonic beasts in Daniel 7. And in Revelation 13, the satanic beast is described as a lion and a bear. Satan is like a lion seeking whom he may devour. The point of the narrative, and yes, as you said, Chris, Goliath was a real giant, a real human being. But the writer, the inspired writer, 
of First Samuel is depicting him on purpose in various ways to help the reader to connect the dots to the grand story of redemption yeah. that Goliath is a serpent figure. And this serpent is about to get his head crushed. <laughs> Thus the head crusher. <laughs> Thus the head crusher, the yeah. main point of the passage. It's great, bro. So let me let me just maybe try to succinctly say a few things and, and see if if we can draw some clarity. Uh, so in a sense, you have on the cross Jesus dying as a substitute, um, the great exchange, first Corinthians or yeah, first Corinthians 5:21. And and you have this imputation happening the victory of jesus on the cross applies to his people that's right and he he defeats satan sin and death and that defeat won by jesus is ours by imputation so you in the same way you have david here cutting off the head of the giant the great enemy of the people of god and though the people of god are afraid and hiding that victory of the messiah like david gets imputed and they win because he won I mean, that's, that's right. really clear gospel imputation right there. Great point, Brother Chris. And so that's why the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this reason, to destroy the works of the devil. Mm. And the crushing of the head, it gets so much emphasis. Goliath's head or forehead is mentioned seven times in the chapter. Mm. And there's mad, it's, it's as if the DVD, is, it's as if the movie, it's, there's mad slow motion. And you know how in some action movies, Chris, you know, you, you see the crash happen on, from this angle, then from this angle, then from this angle, then from this angle. Mm-hmm. First Samuel 17 draws mad attention to the fact that David, by the way, it's with a shepherd's weapon. Mm. David, the shepherd king, the shepherd of the sheep lays down his life for the sheep. Mm crushes Goliath's head. And like you said, it's not enough for him to just take him out with the head blow. He's got to cut off his head. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, the crushing of the head signifies and points toward the destroying of the enemy's power. Mm. And so there's a very important verb that's used in the New Testament for the destroying of the works of the devil. In 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this reason, to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Well, one of the works of the devil is to accuse. Mm -hmm. He's the accuser of the brother. He's the accuser. But because of the great exchange you mentioned, Chris, from 2 Corinthians 5, 21, because all of our guilt has been placed on Christ, and he was accused in our place, he was punished in our place, and all of his perfect law-keeping righteousness has been imputed to us, Satan can no longer accuse us. Mm, That's right. That's one way. There's, there's, a, there's a few other really important ones as we get into the practical, Brother Chris. Mm-hmm. That's just one way that the crushing of the head of Goliath as a type of Jesus crushing the head of the serpent can be applied to the believer by faith in Christ. Mm, that's good. That's good, man. Thank you. And, and I know there's more we could get into. I would encourage True. everybody to get your book, man, and read chapter four and, uh, and be blessed by it. So applied theology, brother, is the idea that we want to take what we've been talking about and now help our listeners, our watchers, you and I even, to to live this out, to live out this, you know, Messiah crushing the head of the serpent on our Mm -hmm. behalf. 
How can this apply on Monday morning, man? Being tempted at work, being tempted with the kids acting crazy, uh, you know, being tempted to look at stuff on your phone you shouldn't look at, et cetera. That's right, man. Well, one quick thing, brother Chris, before we even get into the work of Christ, the son of David, is to think about our sin biblically as that which which is really demonic, Mm. which is really satanic. And so it's striking that Goliath himself is a satanic serpent. He worships Dagon. Mm -hmm. And just as Dagon Uh, fell down in the temple of Dagon when the Ark of the Covenant was in front of it and his head was rolled off. Mm -hmm. So Goliath, that same phrase in the Hebrew, whenever uh, David cuts off Goliath's head, Goliath falls down face to the ground and his head rolls off just like his God. And so the reality is, if we are going to feast our souls on sin, if we're going to feast our souls on idols, we're going to become like our idols. Mm. We are literally killing ourselves and we're playing with demons when we give in uh, to, to, to pornography, when we give in to sexual sin, when we give in, when we indulge in pride, when we give in to, to, to uh, worldly ideologies like critical race theory mm-hmm. or feminism. Mm-hmm. These, these things are from the enemy. They're from the serpent. And so when we give ourselves over, when we play around with the world and when we play around uh, with the lust of the flesh, mm-hmm. we need to understand we're playing with fire. Uh, and, and, and we should, we should uh, despise our sin and we should see our sin the way the Israelites saw Goliath as a beastly, grotesque, satanic monster that he, that he was. And we should have zeal for the glory of God, as we know the son of David, Jesus Christ did most of all. But here's where David is an example for us. And since Christ has destroyed this satanic beast, he now calls us, brother Chris, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Uh, and so that's just one thing before, and, and I, w- I want to keep going deeper, but it, it's best for me to let you chime back in as you're no, go for it, bro. If okay. you want to go deeper, keep going. Let's keep going with that. Yeah. So for one, the fact that we haven't been like David mm-hmm. and we haven't been successful to put the death, the deeds of the flesh. And you know what? The reality is we will continue to fall short of the Lord's glory on one way or another, even as we progressively grow in Christ likeness, even as we bear fruit, even as we make progress in our struggles, we are going to, we are still going to stumble. And so I want to dig deep a little bit more on the fact that Satan is the accuser and he loves to use the fact that we have sinned. He loves to use that against us, especially before the father. Mm. You know, Chris, I don't know about you, but when you struggle with sin, Mm -hmm. you can feel so plagued. You can feel so helpless. In fact, you don't even want to get into the word. Mm. You don't even want to seek the Lord. Sometimes you don't even want to go to church. You don't want to worship because you're, you, you know, you're aware of your unworthiness. And there is real spiritual warfare with the enemy who loves to throw our sin in our face Um, and and Satan knows better than us. God's a holy God who must punish sin. But here's where revelation 12, nine through 11 is huge. And the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan 
the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Now, when did that happen? Brother Chris, that happened at the cross. Right. As John 12, 31 makes clear, now is the hour in which the ruler of this world, Satan, will be cast out. Mm-hmm. And then Revelation 12, 10 says, because the accuser of our brothers, he has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb That's right. and by the word of their testimony. So we overcome the serpent the accuser in his accusations by the blood of Christ first and foremost. And because of that, brother Chris, now we can move on to ways in which the story of David and Goliath and the crushing of the head of the enemy apply in particular to our sanctification. Okay, great, great. Take us down that road, man. Absolutely. And so we know that in Christ, we not only have forgiveness of sins, We not only have justification, the fact that God declares us not guilty, but righteous once for all, but in Christ, we also have sanctification. Mm -hmm. John Calvin's favorite verse was 1 Corinthians 1.30, where it says, because of him, because of the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, whom God has made for us to be wisdom from God, which is righteousness, Mm -hmm. sanctification, Mm -hmm. and redemption. So in Christ, I not only have uh, a right standing with God where God accepts me as righteous, but in Christ, I have holiness and I have the power to change. And Chris, we oftentimes think of sanctification as just progressive in which I'm daily being made more and more like Christ. I'm being conformed to his image. And we should think about sanctification as progressive sanctification. But sometimes sanctification is described in a definitive once-for-all sense. Mm -hmm. In other words, the power of sin, Christian, has been destroyed. That's good. Has been made powerless once for all so that you can no longer be enslaved to sin. Listen to Romans 6.4. We know that our old self, Mm -hmm. that's our old man, our old Adam enslaved to sin self, was crucified together with him. For this reason, so that the body of sin might be made powerless, might be destroyed. And that's the same word from 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared Mm, to destroy the works of the devil. So the body of sin has been made powerless, been destroyed, so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Mm -hmm. And so Paul's whole argument in Romans 6 is because your old slave to sin self was crucified and buried together with Christ, and you've been raised up with him in newness of life, now you can actually say no to sin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the dragon of sin, of porn, of lust, of greed, of pride, of selfishness has been destroyed for you, O Christian. Mm. So you no longer are ruled and controlled by it. Sin shall have no shall have no dominion over you. It can't actually be your real master, That's right. according to to Romans chapter six. So that's you, another important thing. Yes, bro. let me ask you a question, brother. So I, I, I can imagine some people hearing this and saying, "Well, then why, if this is true, if if the cage is open and I'm free to walk out, why does it feel like I can't stop so often? Like, why does it feel like I'm stuck here in in quicksand and I can't get out of it?" 
Yes. You know, how would you answer them? I would say, first of all, I know exactly how you feel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I spent too many days in my Christian life um, in that kind of a discouragement. But I would tell them the way that the scripture gives us direction is to look to Christ. Mm-hmm. Come to Christ. <laughs> there is no quick fix. Brother Chris, because of my Killing Sin album mm-hmm. and some of my uh, very uh, public, clear past struggles uh, that, uh, with sin that, that I've talked about in my music, and I praise God for his redeeming, victorious grace yeah. to deliver me from in, in terms of, of enslavement. I get a lot of emails. I, got a, I get phone calls and text messages. Tim, give me, give me, a, give me a seven-step manual. <laughs> right, <laughs> All right, I can tell them, right? Yeah. But brother Chris, we have Christ. Mm. Come to Christ where he not only promises you forgiveness, but Romans 6, Paul says, count this to be true. And so the reason why we feel stuck is because we're not counting it to be true. We're not considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So, so could we say that you literally have to meditate on this and imagine yourself to be free? Imagine this sin to whatever it is, to not have the power that you're giving it. Uh, is that the considering that needs to take place? Yes. And I would say it's deeper than just imagining. Yes. Meditation is huge, Chris, but realizing it's a reality. Okay. That's what God says. When the Lord looks at me in Christ, he not only sees me as forgiven and righteous, he says, you're not a slave. I have broken the power of sin. And the question is, Lord, are you lying? Mm. And so it's a matter of living our lives in accordance with God's reality, with, in accordance with the truth. We are not in, enslaved to sin. And the Lord, as a gracious, loving, holy Father, He will discipline you. Mm-hmm. He will discipline us until we get it through our thick skulls. Mm. I really am not a slave. Okay, you want to keep it crawling back into the grave, mm-hmm. into that corpse, as it were? It is, it is preposterous. It is ridiculous. God forbid that we do that. And so, Brother Chris, another thing to say is that the Lord disciplines his children and shows them it is so ridiculous and so absurd and it's so contradictory to who you really are in Christ and to the good new life that the Lord has for us. Eventually, he makes his people sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm, and in the meantime, all we have, which is enough, is this gospel of not only forgiveness and justification, but the gospel in, that, that tells us who we really are in Christ, that Jesus has broken sins enslaving power. We have, uh, as Second Peter uh, chapter 1, 3, and 4, his very precious promises, which in and of themselves are enough to conform us into the image of Christ and empower us for a life of godliness. We have the body of Christ. We have calling out to our brothers and sisters. We need to take advantage of the means of grace. Every week, we need to be hearing the truth of the gospel. We need to continue to confess our sin and understand that when we confess our sin, God not only promises us forgiveness, but ongoing cleansing and transformation. We just need Christ. Mm -hmm. 
And so diving into rich theology, bro, is crucial for all of this. Absolutely. Let me ask you a question. Open up what you just said a little bit. Um, You talked about the normal means of grace. Um, I know what you mean by that. I'm thinking some people hearing this, watching this are not are going to be like, what do you mean exactly by that? One, one example I can give is just last night after our worship gathering, we meet at five o'clock. Uh, we're done around 630 or so. Afterward, I was talking to a brother and we talked about how when you put your sin out in the open, it immediately loses power. It right. in a sense is defeated when you bring it out in the open and you're not hiding it anymore. That would be a normal means of grace, the confession part. Great point, bro. And um, that is why the Lord commands us in 1 Peter 5, young men, submit to your elders. Mm. And so our elders are shepherds who are overseers mm-hmm. for of our souls, who must give an account for our souls, and who are there to pray for us. The, the, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man is very powerful. Mm-hmm. And so confessing your sin to your elders in particular, to your pastors, to, to men and women of God, if you're a male, to men of God, if you're a woman, to, to, to solid sisters in your mm-hmm. life, that's huge, bro. And so I, I think uh, Acts 2.42 is a really helpful verse to see some of those means of grace. Uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the preaching of the word, primarily focused on the gospel, uh, to, to, to prayer, to, to prayers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and likely those were written prayers like the Psalms, which guide us in our prayers, uh, to, uh, to fellowship with one another, uh, which is what you guys were doing, Brother Chris. Mm-hmm. Uh, it includes the breaking of bread, the sacraments, the Lord, the, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, and, and fellowship has to do with also worship mm. gathered around uh, the, 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 the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so going to church and being connected to your church, hearing the preach word, worshiping Christ, confessing your sin, being involved in, in prayer groups, prayer meetings, being accountable with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, these are the means of grace that, that, that Christ uses. And we would say the means of maybe sanctifying grace, empowering grace, not the means right. of saving grace. Exactly. And yet, Brother Chris, um, I think we could agree that uh, we, we first get saved by putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a once for all thing. And yet the scripture also puts it as we are those who are being saved. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what? Philippians 2, 13, 12, 13. There you go. We're, yeah. we're being saved um, in, in terms of the fact that, yes, Christ has already saved us from sin's penalty once for all, but we're being saved from its power, mm-hmm. and we will be saved when Jesus comes back. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, bro. These things are crucial, Chris. Thank you for, for bringing it down to earth, man, and, and really um, helping us to apply the, these truths. Any other thoughts that you have at this point? Oh man, I mean, there's so much that that we could talk about. Um, I want to maybe just hit real quick um, for those who are new to this redemptive historical biblical theology. You know, they they do read the Old Testament in a okay. Daniel, you know, stood up in Babylon and he he was faithful. So you know, trust God and be faithful like Daniel. Um, 
we're so obviously they could get the unfolding that you've written and read it. That would be helpful for them learning this um, way of seeing and interpreting the Old Testament to see Christ and see the gospel. What other um, resources would you recommend for people to start? So brand new people, first time they've heard about redemptive historical interpretation. Where would you start them other than the unfolding, which I highly recommend? (laughs) I would really recommend unfolding mystery mm, by that Edmund Clowney. Clowney. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I think Clowney um, does a really good job to write for lay people for, for, for your, your average um, wonderful brother and sister in Christ. So I would, I would recommend the unfolding mystery. Um, I would recommend also, if you want to begin to dive even deeper uh, from there, uh, I would recommend G.K. Beale's New Testament Biblical Theology, mm. which is really all about the unfolding of the Old Testament in the New Testament. So those are a few useful resources, Chris, uh, that I would recommend people. Um, but yeah, the, the unfolding album, um, if, if someone doesn't have the time or uh, the bandwidth uh, to dive into the unfolding book, the unfolding album is meant to also be a resource uh, to encourage God's people uh, to think about the scriptures uh, with, with a Christ-centered focus. Um, and to, so that when you're reading Daniel, you start to notice many aspects of Daniel and that in, 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 in the book of Daniel in relation to Christ first. Because, Brother Chris, at the end of the day, man, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Mm-hmm. Romans 1, 16, 17. The gospel of Christ is where there is the power, not be like David or be like mm. Daniel. And so when we, we can find application and examples for Daniel and David, mm-hmm. but it's best if it runs through Jesus first. Um, because I, sh- I, I, I should only be like David insofar as he resembles the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Good. And so we are David's, we are the son of David's mighty men. Mm. <laughs> What's very striking, literally striking, <laughs> is that David's mighty men slay giants. That's right. Yeah. What Og, uh, the king of Bashan? I can't remember. I think you know, like it, what's really interesting is in 2 Samuel, at the very end of the book, Chris, uh, some of David's men, mighty men, slay lions mm. and even slay, one of them slays Goliath's brother. Mm, yes, yeah, I remember that. But the question is, who did it first, mm. the mighty men or the Davidic messianic That's king? Right. That's right. And so he seems to set the pattern for his mighty men and in a similar way, the Lord Jesus Christ, who overcomes Satan. Then he sends out his disciples who Jesus gives them his authority over the demonic. But then he sends us out as well as those who have power to resist the enemy. And as we see in Ephesians 6, to put on the whole armor of God, but it's to be strong in the Lord. And that's Christ. That's right. Yeah. And we would want to add to that, that he himself by the spirit dwells in us and empowers us to live the way he wants us to live and to kill sin. Right, Romans eight thirteen. by the spirit, we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. Amen, brother Chris. Yeah, it's good, man. Tim, thank you so much, brother, for doing this. I know that we could dig into any story and spend hours 
Um, but this was a helpful unpacking of the David and Goliath theme, which I think for so many of us, it's been, hey, you can crush the giant of debt. You can crush the giant of porn. Just have faith and be like David. And we, we want to say that's probably not so helpful um, as it is helpful to see David as Jesus and to see Goliath as Satan, sin and death, which we could not defeat on our own. That's right, bro. Yeah. Amen yeah. to that. Well, Chris, I praise God for your this podcast, bro, this particular endeavor to apply rich theology to everyday life, man. And may the Lord bless it. Bless your pastoral ministry. And brother Chris, man, we got to do it again, bro. Let's I'm, do it. I'm yeah. excited to I'm do it again. So. Absolutely, man. Yeah, and, and real quick, you're getting your PhD in Old Testament studies, right? From Westminster. You're working on that? That's right, man. Looking at the Psalm of Jonah, Jonah's use of the Psalms. Hmm. In Jonah chapter two, when Jonah's in the belly of the fish, in the belly of death, he starts alluding to all these. He starts quoting and referring back to all these Psalms in which the grave is depicted as a, as a watery pit in place mm. of death, drawing on many of David's Psalms that uh, are talking about resurrection. Mm. And so it That's all good. brings us back to the feet of Jesus. Yeah. And just as the son of man, uh, you know, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so the son of man will be in the, in the heart of the earth. Yeah, it's his interpretation. Right. Again, we could go into so many stories, but yeah, let's do it again, man. We'll, we'll make a plan. We'll do another episode and we'll maybe pick another character and, and dig in. So, I'd love to, Chris. Yeah, brother, to you, thank bro. you so much for this time that you've spent with us. And thanks for the clarity and the helpfulness. Thank you, man. Blessings right, brother. To you, Grace and peace. Love you, man. Love you too.